Welcome to Electricians and Mad Men. I'm Ian Gorman. My guest today is Joe Hedinga, head sound engineer at Third Coast Recording Company, a multi-room facility in Grand Haven, Michigan. Joe is an accomplished keyboardist and engineer with over 20 years experience in playing, arranging, tracking, producing, and mixing. His credits include Umphreys McGee and Megadeth, Liquid Soul, Digital Tape Machine, Strange Arrangement, Max Lockwood, The Turnips, and Todd Kessler. We talked in April 2018 in Third Coast's Studio B. To go back to the beginning, it started with Bill Chrysler um, and his sound company. I think it was called, it's still called Chrysler Audio. Um, he started with live sound about 40 years ago or more. He was actually, his first job was teaching um, how to cut records um, in Los Angeles at, I don't remember which university, but he got his first gig with the Eagles from that, basically. Uh, he ran in front of house for a long, long time. And then in the 80s, ended up running front of house for Van Halen and Roxy Music and Lionel Richie for a long time and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, um, many, many others. And then into the 90s, U2, Christina Aguilera, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. He ran front of house for Lollapalooza in the 90s. That was one of my first big rock shows I went to, which is kind of interesting. Which one? But the It was 90, uh, 93, I want to uh-huh. say. But he ran front of house for a long time and then became a monitor engineer in the 90s when people started to go to in-ears. The sensitivity to the in-ears, I think, made them decide to bring him on as the in-ear monitor person. And he'd been, he did that until now, and he's still doing it with Maroon 5. But he met Joe Sturgill from Four Finger Five here in Grand Haven, and they became friends. And they started a studio called Red Wall that I think started about f- maybe six years ago, some, something like that. Um, he's interested. Bill's you know, going to be getting off the road, hopefully at some point soon. And he wanted to continue doing music into his retirement or into his second career, you know, something like that. Um, so, yeah, him and Joe Sturgill started Redwall. And they, moved he- they bought the building here. Uh, four years ago, but it took a year to buy it. So it, he got off the road, and then it took another year to actually purchase the building because of all the ins and outs of the sale of it. So there was a lot of issues with that, and it just took a long time to do that. There were no walls in the place. Um, I met Bill here through uh, musician friends of mine. Brian Samuels from UV Hippo brought me together with Joe Sturgill and my, uh, Paul Hoffman and... Um, Scott Pellegrim on drums, and we all got together and we're working on songs here at the studio in 2015, April 2015, when I moved here from Chicago. So I met Bill at that session. We were here for four days writing songs, recording songs. Um, band never came to fruition, but it was still a fun project, and Bill kind of saw how I worked. And I'm a musician first and an engineer second, and he really, it was a good fit. He needed somebody like that here. Um, so he kind of brought me on board in August of 2015, and then we started putting up walls about six months later, and it took a year to do all that, <laughs> and then got the SSL 4000G um, Plus last May. So almost a year we've had that, and still working on you know, finishing things in Studio B and Studio A. And you know, the whole time I've been here, though, I've been working on albums constantly. Yeah, so. you... You started doing sessions in here while it was still under construction, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. That's crazy. So Joe Sturgill is still on board and is helping, you know, Bill and him are business partners in this venture. And, you know, it's been a joy to see this come to fruition. And, you know, all, you never really know how things are going to turn out. And it's just been awesome to see this come together. It's like it has. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, for people listening here, you know, there'll be a link to the website in the show notes. You can check it out and look at pictures there. But, you know, to give a description, I mean, it's, it's a large facility with multiple rooms, a large Studio A. We're in Studio B right now, just still pretty sizable, and uh, a bunch of other uh, rooms and offshoots and video production companies mm-hmm. in the same building and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff going yep. on. What um, what kind of projects do you work on here? Do you do mostly album-oriented music, or do you do post-production? Uh, mostly album-oriented music, and EPs and albums pretty much is mm-hmm. what I've done since I've been here. Um, <clears throat> some of my favorites have taken between six months and a year to really from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly just because of the nature of everyone being busy and bands starting something and then not finishing for a while, coming back throughout a course of uh, like a longer range. You know mm-hmm. how that is too, I'm sure. sure. So. You know, that's the way a lot of projects go is piecing it together here and there over time. Mm-hmm. But you guys also seem especially well set up here to longer term sessions and bands mm-hmm. really want to dig in you know there's mm-hmm. a lot of space here there's a, a beautiful lounge area mm-hmm. do you have lodging available nearby do i remember that uh yeah there's a bed and breakfast that we are like we have an association with and a couple other places that are rental properties especially off season we can we have a deal with the studio that, that's really good so yeah some of that and the another local hotel has we have a deal with Definitely would love to just buy a house sometime <laughs> if possible because it's a destination. You know, yeah. it's beautiful here. So, and that yeah, it sure is in Grand Haven here. Uh, uh, we're we're right on Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. and uh, everything that the experience can offer the artist for a, a real kind of retreat style recording mm-hmm. session can be very cool. You know, yep. both the kind of collective group focus on the project mm-hmm. uh, uh, as well as just the experience of being really immersed in the music for yeah. Yeah. Period. yeah, I love it when bands come here for a week or two weeks. And, you know, one of my one of my clients I've been working with, Mar- Marcus Rizak, guitar player, phenomenal musician, uh, was here for a whole month in January. And that kind of thing is just priceless. It was awesome to be able to work on that music and immerse ourselves in it for so long, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Was that in Studio A? Yeah, yeah, mostly in Studio A. Used, I think... 12 different guitars on that project and a bunch of, he brought a bunch of heads and cabs and all sorts of fun. We just geeked out on guitars for a long time. So wow. yeah, it was fun. Super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that you consider yourself a musician first and engineer second. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about how you got into engineering. You started mm-hmm. as a keyboardist and pianist, right? Yep. Yep. Um, so focused on jazz and rock music and then ended up, Focusing on folk and songwriting as well in my early 20s and started a band, uh, kind of a jam band called Strange Arrangement that did uh, quite a bit of touring for about five years. Uh, But my first interest in recording was when I was young. Uh, I had a Tascam Porta Studio. I think it's a four track with a cassette. Does that make sense? I think it, I don't, I have it somewhere. But anyway, that was my first recording. And I also had a Kurzweil keyboard that I had a sequencer on. So when I was in fifth grade, I started recording and would put, lay down drum tracks with MIDI with my Kurzweil and lay down all the strings and, you know, produce my own songs I was writing at that time. Um, So that's how I really got into it. And 
And then I studied on, uh, or I studied performance mostly and piano performance, jazz, classical music. Um, and I came back to it when I got tendonitis so bad that I couldn't play for two years in college. I was at Western Michigan. I couldn't play anymore, so I started to focus on songwriting, and then I came back to recording, I guess, through that, because I just thought, you know, I want to do something in music, and I can't practice eight hours, eight hours a day anymore, so something that will keep me inspired. So mm -hmm. and that's when I met you, and I asked you for my first Pro Tools lesson in 2004. <laughs> uh-huh. And ever since, I've been hooked. So I just showed you where the undo button was. Yeah, and told me to use slip mode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, you know, your experiences with Strange Arrangement are really interesting to me because mm -hmm. you guys gigged a ton and you toured mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious... You know, you were on the other side of it so much. I'm sure that on the road you worked with a million different sound people and, and a lot yeah. of different situations. Yes, yes. How did that affect your approach to engineering, looking at it from the other side? Like, are there things that, as a gigging musician, you could point to as being qualities that make a sound engineer really easy to work with and make your night go better? Wow, that's an interesting question. I, I didn't really ever think about that, factoring into how I treat musicians while I'm tracking and engineering, but I think it definitely plays a huge role because, yeah, if you've gigged a lot, you have experienced a lot of different personalities and treatments from sound engineers. Um, so, yeah, I think I just try to be kind, first and foremost, and patient. Uh, you know, things that I didn't always see from every engineer right. on the road. <laughs> so that's I think that's the first thing. You know, and and also going for what they want first, and because I, I feel like a lot of times I wasn't playing live, I wasn't always getting what I asked for from somebody. So I think you know, listening to artists is also so important. You know, don't just go for what you want. So I, I think those those things factored in big time. Absolutely, you know, mm -hmm. it, as having someone like Bill Chrysler as a mentor mm -hmm. has got to really influence that too. You know, he he yeah. is a. Uh, uh, incredibly experienced live sound engineer and also really famous for being a, a favorite monitor engineer to a lot of stars. And, and to me, that you know, I had a mentor early on that told me that he thought that the headphone mix was more important than the main mix. And that was something mm. I've always really carried with me. And I think what he meant by that is if the musicians hear themselves and play well, mm -hmm. everything else is easy, Yeah, relatively. And if they play like they're uncomfortable, you can't fix it. Yep. Wow, yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, we focus on that. I always bring up the headphone mixes on separate returns so I can hear their mixes mm -hmm. and kind of tweak them as I go. And that's because that that's what Bill taught me to do. Nice. Know? So so you have like a set of headphones in here. You can just throw on and hear that headphone mix. Yeah, yeah. You know, a, another thing that really strikes me about Third Coast here is the windows and the sight lines and the openness of all the spaces it really mm -hmm. feels like there can be a lot of visual communication between bands and that sort of thing yeah. uh how do you take that into account when you're setting up a session how do, how do you like to set up a band in studio a usually i like to set them up so they're in a circle so they can all see each other uh throw amps in other rooms in the iso booths we have basically four or five iso rooms we can use or even six if we had to um and yeah, we'll we'll get everyone in the circle so there's sight lines between all of them and us in the control room, and just have it feel like they're playing together live as much as possible. So, and I mean they are playing together live, 
but the fact that the amps aren't in the room sometimes can throw people off, and we like to try to make sure that doesn't happen and they're close together. In fact, most of the time they want to pull in closer than they than they are because our room is so big, we can keep them further apart and feel more right. spacious. They never want that. They mm-hmm. always want to be close together, which I think is interesting. But yeah. um, it doesn't really matter where they are. It's like, you know, the drums I kind of like to get about eight feet off the wall. I've changed the drum position probably you know, every session it's slightly different. Now sometimes put it at one side of the room or the other. You know, one of our goals is to try to put the same drum set with the same mics in, you know, 10 different locations in the room mm-hmm. and just see the difference, like A, B, the difference between all the different places. Mm-hmm. Haven't done that yet. I just go <laughs> with something I think is going to work and it always does. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I think the room is pretty forgiving yeah, in Studio it, A. So It's a beautiful sounding room. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'm really struck by from the recordings that I've heard you do here are the drum sounds, which mm, thanks. is always, uh, always critical to the sound of the recording as a whole, of course. Mm-hmm. I, I love the, the sound of the room mm-hmm. that you guys have here. And I'm curious... How you approach drums? Do you do a combination of close micing and room mics? Yeah, yeah. Usually I do. I'll I'll do one, you know, all the close mics, of course. And sometimes I'll change my overheads. I'll use ribbons. Sometimes um, we have a pair of Sure three thirteens or the Coles forty thirty eights that I like. I also have a Sure ribbon three fifty three. I believe it is as a mono overhead sometimes, but. Generally, you know, a bunch of close microphones. Uh, we have an NS10 to pick up sub outside the kick and a Sennheiser 902, I think it is. Is that right? 902 or 904? I don't remember. Anyway, that one I like, or a Bayer Dynamic 88 I've used quite often inside. And then one of my favorite things as of late, probably the last six months, is I'll do a Neumann 87 on Omni, like seven feet in front of the drum set, kind of eye level or a little below. And then a stereo pair of coals by the other wall, like way far away. Probably, you know, three times as far away as the first one is, at least. Sometimes wow. so, more. So a three twenty-five mic, feet, th- three mic room mic setup, mm-hmm. a mono one a little bit closer to the kit, and then a mm-hmm. stereo omni. A stereo figure eight XY is stereo what I like to do. Eight. But I, sometimes I'll do a space pair. I've, I've experimented. I always like them, so it's hard. I figure with phasing issues, it's just easier with the next Y. So a lot of times I'll just do that because I like the results. So, mm-hmm. you know. Very cool. Yeah. Um, you mentioned an NS10 sub, which is an interesting thing for some mm-hmm. people listening here that may not be aware of that technique. It, if I understand right, what you're talking about is taking the the speaker from an NS10 and wiring it backwards mm-hmm. and using that using the speaker as a microphone on the kick drum. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Specifically to try to pick up additional sub-frequencies in the kick and mix that in. Mm-hmm, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, and a lot of times with drums, I'll just make sure I align the phase of all the mics, and that can be a, a challenge, of mm-hmm. course. You know, I'll, I do use auto-align sometimes, but I don't always just blindly use that. Um, you know, just got to use your ears. <laughs> like yeah. a lot of times I'll get the overhead sounding good in mono and then make sure everything else is sounding good with those. I don't know what your technique is with that. Your drums always sound amazing too. So it's, it, it, you know, Thanks. kudos to you. I, I don't know how it, I think everyone must do it a little differently. I'm glad we're talking about this stuff. It's yeah. really exciting for me to. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, hear, I, hear what everyone else <laughs> does. Totally. Totally. No, no two engineers approach it the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, Phase alignment is super important when you're 
mixing things that have a ton of mics on it. Do, do you just do that, you know, in slip mode and Pro Tools, kind of nudging stuff around using your ears? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll also, just, I mean, my first try, I'll just, I, I will do auto align and, and try to get the um, snare working with the overheads first. And if I can't get it through that, then I'll start nudging. But uh, I'd say 50% of the time, at least, auto align kind of mm-hmm. does its thing. And I'll go to the next or back samples because you can skip ahead or behind. It's auto line is by Soundradix. I don't know if you have it, but I, it's really really nice. It's, it makes aligning phase easier for mm-hmm. sure. Um, guitars like you can, if you have two mics on a source, of course, or like acoustic stereo acoustics. I always I think are a culprit for those kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. It's auto line can make it quicker for yeah. sure. Bass amp and bass DI is a yeah. common one. Yeah, yeah. So. And you know sometimes just flipping the phase works, but it it always it doesn't always. So. Right, you, you have to be almost exactly out of phase for mm-hmm. the phase button to work. If you're exactly anywhere right. in between, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If you flip it and it goes away, then you know you're good. But uh, we just recently worked on a session for May Early Wine together that I was engineering. You were on keys for, mm-hmm. and something that really blew me away about your playing on that was. How, everything you were doing was always super supportive of the song and the melody and the production as a whole. Wow, you know, thank you. Uh, absolutely. You know, you, it, it was the kind of thing where it always had the song in mind and not the instrument, you know, and mm-hmm. that was something that to me is, is really beautiful and impressive in playing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how that mentality blends into your production style and the way you think about mixing and layers when mm. you work on a production. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the song is first and foremost always for me. Um, a lot of times I I don't get the opportunity to work with just an artist that has songs, you know, as far as getting to produce their songs. It's something I really love doing and I want to do more of because I, I just I have an absolute passion for that. Um, some of the you know artists I've been doing one is Ava Bowers recently with uh, executive producer Michael Hampton here, um, and it's it's just been wonderful to put things together and you know sit with an artist and decide all the parts that we want to go into it and you know have the song be f- be first. Um, I always you know that most of the time I'm doing groups that already have arrangements, which I love to do as well because. A lot of times they want an engineer to speak up a little bit and give some feedback, like, hey, do you think this part is too much or do you think it's supporting something or is it taking away? So I, I do get that opportunity sometimes within band settings too. So um, I, I, I lean towards having an opinion. Sometimes I'm not sure uh-huh. if it's warranted, but I always, most of the time after sessions, get thanked for my insight into the artistic end of things and just trying to, I'm just trying to help, you know, um, and people appreciate that. I don't know if, if engineers out there all, that's a fine line to walk between producing and engineering. And it's something that I've been dealing with since I've started here. And what, what are those roles? And, you know, when do you step, when do you step aside and let them produce it? And when do you say, I think that guitar tone is not quite right for this song, you know, or it's not meshing well with the keys part or, Stuff like that, you know. And so I ask clients first before we start a project now what you want my role to be 
as mm-hmm. an engineer or as a you know engineer with some opinions and thoughts on what you're trying to do or as a co-producer or producer you know and try to make those those things clear up front which kind of freaks people out sometimes too so you got to be careful <laughs> <laughs> how much you're trying to produce somebody right. um, that was a kind of a roundabout answer to that but um, no that- it factors in a lot I mean I, I think I'd I started playing in bands when I was in, I mean, I guess freshman in high school. I, st- I played in jazz band, though, in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh, eighth. But in high school, I started my own band writing songs and recording songs. And I mean, it was strange arrangement back then. It was a different lineup, kind of, but most of the same people. Um, and that, I always had that kind of mind with producing and thinking about what needs to be there and what doesn't. I think a lot of times there's too much going on mm-hmm. in, in things. And it's easy to play a lot. It's, it's not <laughs> easy to play less for some reason. Space is always a difficult thing. So. It's true, you know. But but that also leads to an interesting thought that the act of production is not always adding stuff. Often it's taking things away. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. A lot of times we'll go overboard and then we'll end up in mixing taking things out or in the final stages before mixing when we're doing edits and comps and things. You know what? This part might not need to be there. Let's listen to it without oh, that brings out the vocal so much more and makes me actually listen to the lyric. Okay, well, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, It's never a bad thing if you're hearing the lyric more, I think. You know, right. So. right. has to do with the, the focus of the listener and mm-hmm. making sure that everything is always following that yeah. movement that you're looking for there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You know, you mentioned uh, talking about your role as an engineer or producer with bands before you start a project, what other things do you like to talk about with bands before you start working with them in a pre-production meeting? Interesting. Well, first of all, how many songs they want to do, what kind of arrangements production-wise, if they want it to sound more live, like what they sound like live. I think a lot of bands come in thinking, well, we, we want to cut a record that sounds exactly like we sound live. We don't. We can't add things to it that we don't that we can't pull off live. I that's cool with me. I don't I I don't quite agree with that for wholeheartedly because I'm maybe because I like to make albums <laughs> and it's yeah. fun to add horns to a band that doesn't have horns or mm-hmm. add string parts on a couple songs that they don't have strings live. But me personally, it never bothers me when I see a band that I liked their album and it had strings or horns on it and their live band is a quartet without any of that. I, and if the songs are good and their performances are good with how they play it live, then it's great. Yeah, it doesn't. I think a live performance should kind of be different than an album because that's the beauty of live music yeah. for me. You know, so um, I think a lot of times I'll try to convince them of that, <laughs> not like say, well, well, let's add all these bells and whistles. I'm not saying that. I mean, if they want it to be live, and I'm I'm happy to do that. But just to give them my opinion about that and if they're if they want to do some of that or not. And that's one of the things I talk about. Of course, budget, you know, um, how picky they want to be, how clean they want their album to sound, because a lot of that is in edits, you know, and or or even getting the takes. What kind of vibe do they want? We listen to references. I'll get a list of references of albums they like. That's one of the main things. And then assess that and, and have another pre-production meeting and talk about what we would need to do to get that, you know, or something close to that product. Mm. It's, yeah, those, I think those are the main things. And then just discussing the process, 
you know, if you want to do it live, all live together and capture that in the same room, or if you want to just cut the bass and drums and then do overdubs to that. And, you know, there's so many ways to do it. Um, some albums I've made, we just do the bass and drums first and really make sure those are clean and then overdub to that. Make sure all those parts are good at comp, all those add another part, you know, and that, that project, that process makes it really clear and everything you add is for a reason. Um, but also I've, some of my favorite albums I've worked on have been mostly all just live with like cutting a couple solos and the vocals over it. So mm-hmm. it's always different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, that's why you have that conversation and try to figure out what mm-hmm. the band has in mind, how you can help them achieve that. Yeah. What What are some tips that you would give bands to better prepare for a recording project? Well, I think the number one is get your forms down. And I, I suppose it depends to what your budget is and if you want to arrange in the studio and take the time and if you have a budget for that because it's a nice creative space and you can hear right back more cleanly what you're adding. I think that's a nice process if you can afford it. I don't think most bands can. So usually I would say make sure all your forms are right, how long your solos are going to be. Like if you can carve those things out and know if it's not the less, I guess, you know, the more clear your arrangements are, the better. Work out all your parts, you know, before, unless you want to spend the time working out your parts at the studio, right? Mm -hmm. So... Uh, yeah, number one advice is to get the forms together. If you want to be like uber tight, we play with a click. Probably maybe 70% of the projects I've done here have been every song is with a click. Not that it has to be perfect, um, but if you're not comfortable playing with a click but you want a really clean album sound, then practice with a click. And how I've done it is we'll just put it in the wedges in the PA and have the whole band hears it. Or if you're on headphones at rehearsal, put it in your headphones. Going into the studio and trying to record with a click before practicing that way is kind of can be a nightmare. Right. You know? Yeah, you, you don't want... It, it takes practice to get comfortable with it and yeah. you don't want that to be on the clock mm-hmm. with, with, you know, the session rolling. Yeah, and I think the click is should be your friend and you, you should pretend like it's another instrument in the band. It, you shouldn't hear it that much. If you're hearing it, then you're not quite jiving and mm-hmm. grooving with it. So, yeah, it just it helps us engineers too a lot. And if they want to fly a part that they loved on the chorus of a song to the next chorus, it's much easier to fly it there than if it's not with a click because then it might be a different tempo at that point. Not that we can't do it without it, but it's just easier. So, totally. Yeah. I also wonder, with all of your extensive keyboard experience, mm-hmm. do you get much into programming and loops and that sort of thing in the studio? Not not as much as I would have thought, no. Um, generally, if I mean, I, I've been lucky to be able to play on probably over half the projects I've done here. I've played keyboards on at some in some capacity, and it's always really fun to do that. But generally, I guess when you're talking about loops and things like that, the only thing I really loop would be like a shaker part or a tambourine part or something that's just extremely repetitive mm-hmm. and that they want to be like super solid in the track. But generally, I always go with comps of all the instruments and not like not really copying and pasting unless it's like the most obvious bass part or something that's just like mm-hmm. needs to be exactly the same in one part um but yeah if we do edits it'll be on the actual performance all the way through instead of like making loops and pasting them and things like that 
well, I have done some electronic music. I've done that way more, a lot more. But that's what I was thinking of was mm-hmm. more about incorporating programmed music with live instruments and that sort of. Yeah. Thing. Well, I so when I first started, I was doing a band called Digital Tape Machine with a couple of guys from Humphreys McGee, Chris Myers and Joel Cummins and Dan Rusinski, Marcus Rizak, who's now we're making a, his first solo album. But that band last, we were doing stuff for about five years, and I was doing a lot of production in Ableton live at that point. And most of it was MIDI because I didn't have analog synths yet. So I really got into it and using loops and crazy MIDI things. You know, um, I love MIDI. <laughs> it's, it makes it, it's so different than recording audio. You know, it's mm-hmm. everything can just be so perfect and easy to produce, I feel like. Um, so I carried that with me into audio and making albums with, with like the more roots styles now and it, so i think it helped me it, de- it definitely helped me like realize how tight something can be um but i don't do a lot of it i bought a profit and a moog <clears throat> um synth so most of the time i'll play all the synths that are in things even if it's more of a synth heavy production i'll just play those parts audio in. i don't use midi barely ever now it's just weird because i got so into it for a while and now I barely ever use it, you know? So it's, I think it's just phases, you know, I'll probably get back into it at some point, but right now it's most people aren't, aren't wanting to use, I'm not doing a lot of electronic music right now. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, I miss it. I yeah. like it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I got to think there's some really interesting opportunity. There's definitely some musicians in kind of the root scene that are much more adventurous musically mm-hmm. and people that really embrace combining different genres and, and really kind of playing in a larger sandbox like that. It could be yeah. really cool to incorporate into some stuff. Yeah. Like some of the things I love to do um, was I would, I would, and I still do this sometimes, I'll write all the parts on soft synths in Ableton, like Massive and Nexus and what I'll, Dune, all these other soft synths. And I'll write all the parts and, you know, all the sound design kind of and get like close to the sounds I want to use, but I'll arrange a whole song. Uh, there's an album out that, or it's not, it's not out yet, but it's a project I worked on in the last year that was mostly done this way where I would just write all the parts and have everything arranged. And then I would just reassign the MIDI out of the computer to my profit. So it'd be playing the part and I'd record that through the API, uh, high Z inputs and I can hear the part and make the sound as the parts playing back. So I'm, you know, it's already all uh-huh. exactly how I want it timing wise and all the parts are right, but it's making the sounds then did that on strange arrangements EP that we're going to be putting out. I didn't, it's not out yet, but probably eight synth parts that way. And I would, it's so fun to just be able to tweak and make the sound as it's playing back to you. Yeah. So I do that and record them all back in analog sound, you know, different actual real analog synths based on MIDI played, wow. played from MIDI, but made new sounds with those and recorded them. Wow. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. a you know a fun way to do it. And, and another thing you can do, which is nice, is automating envelopes. You know, using the MIDI numbers in Ableton. So, say you want some really interesting um, and detailed, you know, cutoff or modulation or something like that on the analog synth that you can't physically do perfectly every time with your hands. You can assign it just like you would any automation in Pro Tools or in this case Ableton. 
like on a volume or something like that, but it's for the cutoff or the or the mod wheel or something, mm-hmm. and you can copy and paste every exact one how you want it, and then record that back in. Oh, so it's playing exactly how you want it, but it's in real time recording the audio. Makes does that make sense? Sure. So you yeah. can get really picky about those kinds of things that you you might not be able to if you weren't using MIDI. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool, man. So many creative possibilities there. Yeah. Really neat. Yeah. When was it that you moved to Grand Haven from Chicago? Or to Grand Rapids? Yeah, Chicago? Grand Rapids. Uh, in April 2015. 2015. So three years ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, I, I have spent most of my musical life in Michigan. And mm-hmm. from my point of view, I feel like we have this incredible scene going on that is endlessly inspirational to me and, and really deep on a lot of different levels of musicians going on, but you've spent most of your life in a place with, you know, in Chicago with, mm-hmm. you know, obviously a whole nother level of epic historic music scene. Yeah. How is it for you coming here from there? What, what What is your kind of fresh view on what's going on around this place? Well, I think it's amazing. I think what we have going on here is like a renaissance of great artists and music coming out of Michigan. It's amazing to me. Um, I think in Chicago, it a lot of artists are so busy doing other things because life is just seems to be it's fast, it's kind of fast paced, and it's really expensive to live there. And you know, people have to do a lot of other things to make the ends meet. And I I think it's like that here, of course, for musicians too. It's always being a musician is challenging yeah. <laughs> how you cut it. But here, I think people have more time in their lives for relationships and uh, this creative energy that people have here is something really special that people it's heartfelt here in Michigan and I think it of course it is there too but I get this sense of a love for what people do here no matter what it is if it's music or you know being uh, cooking food at a restaurant in on Wealthy Street by my house everywhere I go there's care and real like love in what people do in West Michigan. And I just think it comes through in the music scene too. And everyone that I know that's involved in it has this just sense of pride and love for the art and music. And, you know, I, I just think it's amazing. I've, there's a lot of other things I loved about, I've, I've loved about moving to Michigan, but the scene is thriving. And, you know, when, when you come here and you're interviewing me and you have your studio in Kalamazoo and we have third coast here in Grand Haven and both of us are are so busy doing records that are great, great music from all these artists. And they're all just here, right here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. I mean, mostly, you know, I've done a couple people from out of state, but mostly it's been here. And I'm always amazed and inspired by the music I'm doing. Yeah. And it's just kind of, I kind of can't believe it. I pinch myself all the time. Like, I can't believe this is what I get to do for my job, <laughs> you know, that I get to work on this great music with somebody that's such a quality person. And, yeah, you know. Um, I think there's a, there's so much to go around, and I, there's so many other studios here that all seem to be doing stuff, and you know yeah. it's exciting. Well, that's the dream, right? Is yeah. to have an incredibly diverse and prolific scene of people mm-hmm. creating with each other, and, and you know, yeah, it's it's really something. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. I'm looking yeah. forward to getting to some festivals hopefully this summer, uh-huh. and you know, I, I love going to those because I get to see so many people and, and reconnect with so many that I've met known over the years and just it it really is a testament to how thriving the scene is but you know even going to founders on a, any given night there's a show and how packed it is with people it's always just like, 
I can't believe it. New venues opening all the time, you know, mm-hmm. 20 Monroe Live in Grand Rapids now, and the intersection opening a whole nother venue. And just, it. I can't believe how thriving it is that there's that many venues that can open and they're all doing well. So yeah. it's, I mean, it's wonderful to see everybody going out and supporting live music. Keep doing it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, let's take a look at the track that you brought to share here. Uh, uh, who, who is this that you brought along? Um, so this is a band called The Turnips. Um, some friends of mine, Andy Kirby is, I, I say the band leader. So this song that I'm about to play, uh, what they, all of them sang on. So this was one of the first projects, I think. I did. It wasn't the first, but it was within the first few I did. Um, and it was on, we recorded on this console right here, the Soundcraft Series 4. We recently got an SSL 4000 uh, in Studio A. So now this this board is in Studio B. Um, and these were all just the pre's here. Um, yeah, this is just a really fun, funky track that I, I still love. This, they put this album out, I think, about a year and a half ago now. Maybe a little less than that. But I still come back to it and listen to it. I think it's fun to go back and you know, think back to some of the time. I and mean, we just, we spent, I think, eight months on this album. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of they were in and out. Uh, Andy Kirby re- joined UV Hippo during this process, and Joe Fillion is on drums on it, who's also in UV Hippo. Um, but yeah, this track was fun to work on. It's got um, it starts with a guitar riff, and we did this live in Studio A. We had Seth Bernard co-producing this as well. Um, so yeah, we had two guitar amps. Bass. He played a Fender Jazz. Uh, wait, a P. Yeah, sorry, seventy-six P bass through the Fender Bassman and the Ampeg four by ten cabinet. We had um, two guitars, and then there's organ on it. I think I played organ, and there's a clav part um, and a huge vocal track. One of my favorite things about the vocals here: this wide sound that we were able to get with, through double tracking. Uh, to, I think it was a three-part that we double-tracked, and just you know the fun of panning and using you know a uh, little uh, micro-tuning a little bit to kind of spread it a little wider. So, so you double-tracked all of the vocals, including the harmonies and everything. I think so. Yeah, Sweet. yeah. And then we put just the background vocals through a micro-shift, I believe, and kind of did a very short delay on it to kind of try to widen those up. Um, the other thing that's of note is I, on this one. On this whole album, I I use a plugin I never use. I use Drumatom. Have you used that? No. It's a plugin that you can isolate drums even further than what you would be able to do with a gate. It's oh. kind of like a super smart gate. Uh, it analyzes from the overheads, and then you can really like fine tune with only two knobs, which is wonderful. How much you're cutting out of other sounds? Hmm. It, it's kind of crazy. So anyway, uh, Andy Kirby, if you're hearing this, I don't know if you knew I did that, but. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, let's check it out.
Man, that, that track is just sounding killer, Joe. Really, really nice. So that was all recorded here on the Soundcraft that's currently in Studio B, but that was back in Studio A, right? Yep, yep, that's right. Was that a basic tracking session that had the band playing mostly together live? Yeah, everything was tracked live on that. The only thing overdubbed was the organ part, um, and that was because he played clav through that section, so didn't want to do the clav part and the organ at the same time. So it was the organ overdub, and I think the solo, the guitar solo overdubs, and then some of the percussion you hear later. But all the you know, two guitars, clav, bass, drums, uh, were all done live, which was awesome. So yeah. that's how I like to do it. No <laughs> so, doubt. Yeah. Well, the Turnups are also a band that play a lot. You know, they're mm-hmm. tight. They, I'm sure they showed up. Have oh, their yeah. songs ready to go. Yeah, you know? big time. Yeah, it was a really, really fun session. I think they spent a whole week here, five five days here, when they when we tracked ten songs during that week, and then just some overdubs afterward. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I, it was I love, fun. I love the kick drum sound in that. Did that Thank incorporate you. that NS10 sub that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, yeah. It was, that was back to the Bayer Dynamic 88 inside mm-hmm. and a um, NS10 for the sub. Believe that was a sonar kick that we pulled the head off the front, but I'm not positive about that. Mm. I could look back, but a lot of times that sound I can get with taking the front head off of a kick drum is how I usually get a punchy sound. It's mm. like that's like the basketball kick, I, I call it. You know? uh-huh. It's just kind of right there, super punchy and bright, but with a lot of sub to it too. If so. a drummer shows up with a front head that doesn't have a hole in it, do you mm-hmm. ask them to take off that front head then? Um, not always. I've, but generally, yeah, <laughs> you know, like if it's a folky acoustic thing that they want a really like, I guess a boomy kick drum, that's not really the focal point of mm-hmm. not that they don't need a lot of attack on, mm-hmm. then I'd, I'd say no. Or I can put a mic maybe back by the beater, by their foot. Mm-hmm. But then you, I tend to get a lot of noise from the pedal generally. It's hard to get like the squeaky noises out of there right. when you do that. Right. So yeah, a lot of times I'll, I'll, we, you know, we have drums here. We have four drum sets that we can, we make like weird hybrid kits all the time for drummers that come in. Generally drummers, it's a hybrid, you know, not, not very often where a drummer will play their own, their full own kit when they come here, but about, about half and half maybe. Do you ever find yourself changing out snare drums and stuff like that, depending on the tune? That's all the time, yeah. all the time. And I, I find myself recently tuning kick drums, um, treating like tuning toms and tuning snares which i've just started to do recently because it's like you know as we were already already talking about it like the drums are i think are the basis of the mix you know if you don't have a good drum track then i think you're kind of sunk like that the drums have to sound great so i've gotten into tuning snare drums and scott pellegram is he's is sort of on staff here and teaches here and he has a lot of drums as well I've learned a lot from him. Um, I'll bring him in as a consultant sometimes for groups that when they're tracking, we'll bring him in and he can help tune the drums and make sure they're exactly what we want. It's quicker for someone like that that has so much experience when I say, well, I'd like it to sound a little bit like deeper, maybe um, like I want the snare to sound deeper, not as long, not as many snares not as much ring or i want more ring they know how to get that sooner but i've been learning a lot now about it and i'm starting to tune drums maybe for drummers that have a lot of experience playing live but maybe not recording Mm -hmm. so they don't they might not know what i'm hearing so i have to now know how to get what i'm hearing and and a lot of times recently i've had i've had sessions when they went you know that's not what i would have done but now i really love the sound of the snare Mm -hmm. so trying to get into that 
Well, that's interesting. You know, so much of the snare sound, what you're talking about, it's happening before it even reaches the mic. It's mm-hmm. choosing the right drum. And, you know, you, you guys, you know, just out in the lobby, you have a big rack of snares out there. You yeah, know, there's yeah a lot we have of about 10 snares that we choose wow. from. Yep. <laughs> so choosing the right drum and uh-huh. also, you know, having it tuned and set up right. You mm-hmm. know, you mentioned Scott, uh, you know, who uh, uh, works here, who's a really well-known drummer. And, mm-hmm. and having him has got to be a great asset. It is a huge asset, yeah. yes. I think that that's a, a big reason why drum tracks coming out of here sound good is because of having Scott here. I mean... Mm-hmm. A lot of times he comes in and we consult him on on the sounds we're getting. It's just it's awesome, you know. The more yeah. people we have, the merrier, and it helps everybody. So, uh, another thing that is really impressive me about that mix with the turnups is you were talking about all of the vocal layers. And you could hear that it's a huge, mm-hmm. thick choral vocal sound, but it's mm-hmm. sitting in the mix so nice, and everything seems to be working around it. Mm-hmm. Did you was that something you really had to work on in the mix to kind of make room for that choir? Mm-hmm. You know, I think back then, I because now I've been doing more side chaining the vocals, or side chaining the like rest of the mix to the vocals a little bit at certain frequencies. But back then, I I don't think I was doing that yet. So I think what I did is I rode the volumes of keys and guitars mm-hmm. and even um, hi hats and drums and things to the to the <laughs> vocals. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, really? um, and you know, just that fine balance, like ride riding the the level of everything. You know, I I think. I remember I was reading an interview with Bruce Swedeen about that, that like he doesn't use compression, he uses vocal or volume automation mm. instead because he feels like it compromises the tone, right, of something. Um, so I, you know, I kind of go back and forth between that. Sometimes I'll just try to not use compression and just volume, volume ride pretty much everything in a mix. So... Yeah, that's what I did for that. I know I did because mm-hmm. yeah. that wasn't that phase, you know, I was going <laughs> <Right>. through. <laughs> uh, what, uh, explain uh, that that crazy kind of swoop sound that happens in the middle of the instrumental section. What do you do for that? Yeah, it was one of those situations where it was going into the next section of the song. Something needed to build. Uh, there was a drum fill. There was maybe a guitar swell. There was some stuff that was supposed to help build, but it just wasn't enough. And as engineers, like, how do we, what can we do about that? And I think it was one of the band members, I'm not sure who. I mean, can't we do some sort of just weird effect thing that, that will be like a whoosh effect or something, you know, to make it kind of pop? So what we did is we took a guitar chord that was just like a random chord from the next section that would kind of work over the previous section. Just took a little snippet of that, put it up front on a, on a separate track that wasn't being sent to the main mix bus, sending it to the Universal Audio EP34 Mm-hmm. Uh, tape echo, and then another, probably another reverb, a plate reverb, most likely. After that, <clears throat> turn the feedback way up on the tape as it kind of started to feedback and just got it crazy, and then put a Moog filter on the end of it to filter down the cutoff right before the downbeat. So you hear that. It's mm-hmm. basically a feedback of a tape echo getting louder and louder, almost overtaking the mix and then a quick swoop down on the on the filter of that whole effect right before going into the wow. next section. Yeah, so that, those kinds of tricks are fun, yeah. you know. Try and try to get do do more of those in some of the more recent like electronic productions I've been doing, but not as much in rock music. And I think it's just fun to like get things from different genres and put them all t- together in different ways. So yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, what's up next for you? What what projects do you have going on in the studio right now that are coming out? 
Well, uh, Max Lockwood's project is just amazing. It's his solo album, uh, untitled yet as of right now, but a lot of really, really great songs. He brought Julian Allen in on drums, and then he played bass and all the guitars on the whole thing, and mostly all the keyboards. So it was just mm. bass and drums live, him and Julian. Wow. And they were going for a really dry drum sound, kind of um, like backseat change or you know, in, in that 70s kind of dry drum mm -hmm. sound. So we used the ribbon mics for overheads, had them pretty close to the kit. Uh, I think 421s on Tom's, just a 57, and uh, I used an SM7 on the hi-hat, mm. and then a uh, the NS10 and the Bayer. But no room mics, and we put a blanket over the entire kit, um, just surrounded the kit in blankets. Wow. Like So the whole kit probably didn't have more than four feet away from the kit that wasn't covered around with blankets. Oh, so you like, it was like, you like the draped blankets up around it like a little fort. Yes, uh -huh. we put it, he was in a fort and Max <laughs> could see him through a hole in the fort <laughs> playing bass. Wow. And they, yeah, so that's how they, they did the whole bass and all, the, the whole album was done that way. What, what a different approach from what you usually do here with drums. Yeah, kind of and Julian tuned the drums to every song. He would mm. specifically, I mean, literally every song had a different tuning on the drums, the kick drum, snare, Tom's, you know, I mean, really took his time making sure. I think they tracked it all in two days, all the drum tracks for that. But wow. it was really, really cool, you know, to have someone with that much care and concern. And it comes out. I mean, mixing this record and working on it since then has been a joy because the basis was so good. That's, mm -hmm. I love to work on an album that's just from the beginning, like that well thought out and. Just the playing is, is so interesting, and the tones are so interesting. That was recorded on this as well. All the drums were recorded on this Soundcraft. Um, but anyway, that's going to be out. I don't know when it will be out. We're in the final mi mixing stages now. Um, and then another one that I'm excited about is Marcus Rizak's solo album. Um, he plays with all kinds of people. He's in a, a couple different groups. Like I know he's playing um, this summer. I don't know if it's announced yet, so I won't say that. But he, he plays with a lot of the jam band scene people. Um, Bill Evans on saxophone is on this album. Chris Myers of Mumphreys McGee is on this album. Mm -hmm. Joel Cummins, a uh, keyboard player from Mumphreys McGee. Um, he's got Arthur Barrow that was on bass. That was um, Frank Zappa's Clone Meister for a long time. And so he's playing wow. bass on it. Yeah. Uh, and then I played some keys. Marcus played five or eight guitars on every song. We wrote all the music in two weeks here, arranged it all, and then sent tracks off. So it was a hybrid. Chris recorded the drums in Nashville. Joel came here. Arthur recorded bass in L.A. You know, he's. it's just been all across the board. People recording. Wow. Bill Evans did his in New York, sent the tracks back, lining them all up, you know, zeroing out things, just constantly sending and receiving tracks and mixing them all together. So it's been fun. <laughs> yeah, we, we wrote and... Did that all here. So that's going to be coming out hopefully this summer as well. So those are two major projects for me that I'm excited about. Wow. Yep. Sweet. Man. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for spending some time here with me. This has been a great chat. Thanks so much, Ian. For more on Joe, visit thirdcoastrecording.com. You've been listening to Electricians and Mad Men. Today's interview was recorded at Third Coast Recording Company in Grand Haven, Michigan. Our featured recording was John Bon Brovi by The Turnips. Our theme music was written and performed by Brian Koenigsnacht. For show notes, links, and more episodes, visit electriciansandmadmen.com or subscribe on iTunes. I'm Ian Gorman of La Luna Recording and Sound. Thanks for listening.